there's a whole lot of romance about community radio stations and their poverty, that somehow the poverty ennobles the community radio station, makes it independent, makes it more lively and, you know, vibrant. I, I don't share most of that sentiment. I think that poverty sucks and that not having money to pay the rent for a community radio station doesn't make it a better radio station. On this edition of Radio Survivor, our own Matthew Lassard joins to analyze the president's threat to defund public broadcasting, putting it in historical perspective and explaining what this means for community radio. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Klein, and I'm here with my podcast friend, Paul Reismandel. And uh, joining us via Skype, it's our it's our long lost podcast friend Matthew Lassar. Hi guys, <laughs> hey Matthew, it's so good to have you with us on good to be the here. podcast on Radio Survivor. Hey, so today we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do two things, and um, what it, it's uh, we have two sides to the coin, the dark and the light. So I think we're gonna start with the with the gloomy. And then we're going to head into the sunshine uh, for the home stretch. Things that make us, uh, things that that keep us up at night, and then things that keep us happy about radio uh, in 2017. Yes. Uh, to start with, well, we're going to talk about some news that came down uh, this week. Um, it's the budget, which is proposed by uh, number 45. Let's call him the president, Donald Trump's budget, and in it. It is proposed full defunding of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting by the year 2018. Now, uh, that's in part why we wanted to have Matthew here. Matthew, for those of you who are not familiar with Matthew's resume, Matthew is as an historian. But in particular, Matthew, I mean, you're an an historian of, of community radio. And radio in general, in addition to many, many other topics. And, and Matthew has authored three books, including two books on Pacifica. And your most recent book is called Radio 2.0, which looks forward to the digital future of radio. So um, we're really hoping you can help us put this in perspective because yeah. especially in low power well, FM, but in, and in college radio and in much of community radio these days, uh, the CPB isn't as relevant as it used to be, but yet I think there still is a relevancy to us, um, everyone who loves radio. Yeah, we should do the news. We should do the newsy thing and and go, Matthew Lassar. What is your reaction to President Trump's proposal, his budget proposal? It sucks. Um, I, you know, obviously this is it's bad. Um, it, you know, it's bad, uh, especially. You know, it should be pointed out that, uh, as you pointed out, a lot of community radio stations and radio stations across the United States and televisions across the United States get relatively little money from the corporation for public broadcasting. I think that CPB had just put out a, uh, some kind of an advisory protesting, um, president Trump's, um, um, uh, proposal and points out that, you know, the, the, the average American gets about, you know, a dollar 45 a year or something like that per capita in value, you know, in, 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 from, from the corporation for public broadcasting. But the, you know, the, the, the statement also points out that the CPP really spends that money in excellent ways. So that it gets a lot of that gets a lot of value for that relatively small amount of money. But it's important to remember that compared to European countries, like for compared to like Germany, for example, I think Germans get like 70 times per capita. That's what um, they spend. Well, you know, that's, yeah. you know, you know, on public broadcasting compared to, uh, to the United States, you know, in some of the Scandinavian countries, I think it's like 80 times, you know, it's just like the incredible difference between what they would spend in France spends on public broadcasting compared to the, the United States. Um, still, the CPB is really important um, uh, for radio and television stations. 70% of the money goes to so-called um community service grants. And those community service grants are particularly important in rural America, where it's harder to raise money. Ironically, like in so many things, these this proposed cut will hurt rural listeners. It will hurt, that's right, it will hurt the very people, in many instances, who voted for Donald Trump the most. And you can expect to see a lot of Republicans in rural America 
oppose this or, you know, or, or, you know, or at least, um, yeah, oppose it or, you know, resist it in various ways, because often those radio and television stations are the only places where they actually can communicate with their, with their, with, with, with their constituents. Um, and so they sort of depend upon them. Um, those, those rural, um, uh, publicly supported, um, television and right, radio. Because the markets radio. are so small out there in those parts of the country that there, there wouldn't be TV or radio without, without not this that, government. Not subsidies. that, not that kind of TV and radio, not locally accessible, public orient, public, public interest oriented, um, TV and radio where you have somebody in the morning who doesn't talk about, you know, doesn't just talk about who, what the latest pop singer did, you know, yesterday, but actually talks about public affairs and, um, you know, and public issues and local issues. Those places are those CPB supported radio and television stations across rural America. That's where these cuts are. That's where the end of the CPB is going to hurt the most. It won't hurt that much in the big cities where they get a lot of money from a lot of different places. It's going to hurt the most in, in, in these, um, far, um, um, f further out r rural, uh, parts in the United States. And that's one of the reasons why I think that once again, it should be remembered that, um, George W. Bush also, um, proposed with a Republican Congress, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House of Representatives completely eliminated the corporation of Republic Broadcasting, and it didn't happen that time. Uh, that doesn't mean I think it's a dumb, done deal that it won't happen. I still think it's going to be a struggle. I still think Big Bird is going to get rolled out, and all those things are going to get rolled out. Except Big, Big Bird is on HBO now. Right. That's, 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 that's right. Been, Big Bird has been privatized. That's right. Big Bird gentrified. has been privatized. <laughs> um, Sesame um, Street's been gentrified. But um, I still think that, you know, it'll, you know, it, there'll be a lot of pushback to this. You know, and, um, and there's, you know, you mentioned a rural impact, and I think there's two very salient examples, uh, w one of which uh, was shared with us by Sally Kane, who is the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, who pointed out to us uh, a few episodes ago, we'll have it in the show notes, that uh, tribal stations, so stations on Native American reservations, rely heavily on corporation or public broadcasting money. And these are places where often there are no other radio signals. Yes. That maybe aside from some AM radio at night, those FM community stations or AM community stations in some cases are the – broadcast service for these folks uh, who live there. And these stations provide, again, not just news, entertainment, and discussion, but they also provide emergency alert services, which could be around weather in addition to other sorts of emergency yeah, I alert. keep thinking of the fires. And fires, west. exactly. You know, that, that, we're that, we're that, heading back into fire season. Exactly. That happened in places like the eastern parts of, uh, of, of Washington, eastern parts of of Oregon that happened across Idaho, Montana, Northern California, uh, where there's also a high concentration of, of many of uh, many of these uh, tribal areas. On top of that, I've read recently that West Virginia's public broadcasting system is on the verge of collapse, and a loss of CPB funding could eliminate it. And this is a place, again, where there's many parts of the sort of hill country in West Virginia where public radio stations are really the only stations that have decent penetration because they've invested quite a bit in setting up uh, translator stations, right? So the repeater stations, you know, running at 10, 20 to 250 watts uh, to provide service because because the hills make it more difficult for a lot of FM stations to propagate, to provide all sorts of community service broadcasting to regions that otherwise don't don't receive a yeah. lot of radio. So it's instead of, you know, you, you imagine this, I imagine this being a, like a way for a spiteful president to uh, screw over California and New York. Yes. It's in, it's, it's in fact, you know, hitting Clinton, people Clinton in places country. like, That's right. like That's right. Nebraska. The latte, the latte liberals will, I mean, unfortunate things will happen in, um, urban community, in urban community, public radio stations. Um, there'll be more reliance on, um, um, you know, info infomercials, um, you know, um, enhanced, enhanced underwriting spots. Um, they'll become more commercialized. In addition, um, uh, program directors will probably spend more time privileging programming that gets more enhanced, um, um, underwriting or brings um, in more uh, pledge money, you know, that, 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 that caters to, uh, the up, the moneyed upper middle class. Right. So that'll, that'll happen. 
but they'll do that and they'll get, you know, they'll get they'll get through this one way or another. It's not the people who Donald Trump hates the most um, who will suffer from this. It's the people who Donald Trump promised a better life to um, who will um, wind up um, uh, uh, um, um, suffering the most as because of this, as with, if I may editorialize his health care plan. Right. Um, you may editorialize, you know, you know, which is which is a similar um, example of that. It also should be pointed out that those indigenous, those those native radio stations are the only places where their indigenous languages get um, spoken in a in a in a in a, in a media context. Right. Uh, you know, many of those radio stations um, have shows which keep alive and educate the, and educate their audiences and keep and keep the young people um, um, uh, aware of um, these indigenous languages. So that's really an important part of their their cultural tradition. That's another thing that's really important about these um, these native radio stations. Matthew, you sort of you mentioned it in your first response, but I want you to talk more about uh, more of the historical arc of this moment where a Republican president uh, threatens to zero out the corporation for public broadcasting. Um, where, well, where, does, where does Trump stand in the in the well, Trump is, you know, Trump is Trump is going to, you know, this is not the first time American presidents have since the Reagan era, the Bush era, um, been putting people on the seat on the corporation for public broadcasting who have always accused it of being too liberal and too left wing and demanding um, more balance. There's a statement that says that the CPB has to give out money in ways that are that are balanced. And that fight has always happened. And I think that going back to the beginning of the corporation for public broadcasting, we need to put point out a historical mistake, which was made in the 1967 Public Broadcasting Act. I'm glad you asked me this question, which was that when the um, when 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 public broadcasting was being deliberated back then, what what advocates said over and over again is that we need some kind of an independent fund for public broadcasting, either like the British to have a tax on receivers or some kind of a fund that is based on auctioned funds for um for licenses like you know the the corp like the federal communications commission when it has new license areas available it auctions them out um, to the public and then brings in the money that money goes straight to the treasury instead you know congress could have passed a law that said that some of that money goes to some kind of a fund to fund public broadcasting there could be all kinds of ways to create an independent fund for public broadcasting. Instead, what you have, you have annual appropriations, you know, or biannual appropriations, depending on what kind of a mood Congress is in. I think the last appropriation was $445 million um, to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That, that means that presidents can always threaten to shut it down or threaten to reduce the funding because they heard something on some PBS station or something like that that they thought was bad. And it politicizes it rather than having this independent stream that is not dependent upon the vicissitudes of the political system. You have this highly politicized system, and that's the reason why we're dealing this this yet again for the millionth time. And one reading of the passage of, of the Public Broadcasting Act, right, which, which was the result of of a commission, the Carnegie Commission. That's right, right, which 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 investigated the need for educational programming in particular. Also, non-commercial. There was, yeah. you know, the original idea was that you needed a non-commercial service. I mean, that was the original vision. Yet there was there was wide support for this amongst the major commercial networks at the time. Right. Right. I mean, so this was not something which was sort of a, a unilateral act of Congress, right? This Carnegie Commission engaged the broadcast system as it existed in the 1960s. Right. But the reason for oh, – go ahead. No, go ahead. Please, please fill me well, in. Well, one of the reasons that they supported it was because they wanted they they wanted the educational broadcasting community, as it was called back then. They wanted the educational broadcasting community off their backs, the public – you know, the commercial broadcasters. Um and in fact, I think that um, Lady Bird Johnson, Linda Johnson's wife, wife um, she um, she owned a TV station in Texas. Huh. And I think that she was sort of, you know, I think that, you know, Johnson's thinking about this was, you know, it, Linda Johnson's thinking about this was, you know, if we could just get this thing going, then there would be less, you know, the, the commercial broadcasters wouldn't be constantly um, being pushed to push more educational programming on the air. So in a sense, um, 
public broad, you know, they they saw public broadcasting as something that would um, mean that they would have to w- worry less about public service responsibilities. Mm, exactly. That was the reading I was that I recollected. So I, I want to double check that that's the same one that you recollect, and that there's this element here, right, uh, of sort of uh, of of pushing to government uh, services uh, that in fact the private sector would be glad to be rid of. Right. And that's sort of, I think a lot a history of a lot of, of government service. Uh, it's a reading of, of sort of what, what people might, might call the regulatory state or, or, uh, or providing the safety net has been, it actually comes at the behest of, of the private sector in during one era only to be protested by the private sector in a subsequent era. You know, complaining that you know, as as you see, as you'll hear in uh, uh, in, in the UK, often some of the the few private broadcasters will complain that they can't compete with the BBC, and you will hear occasionally broadcasters in in the in the US complain that 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 it's not fair for them to have to compete with public broadcasting. Well, the thing is, it's different now, though, and here's how it's different. Back in those days, there was a Federal Communications Commission that was on top of commercial broadcasters to fulfill their public service yes. um, requirements. They were, it was a very active federal communications commission, which, um, which said to broadcasters, you know, they were just, it was three year license period. Um, there were all kinds of public service announcement requirements. There was the fairness doctrine. There were all of these other things um, where, you know, they basically said we are going to um, reward license holders uh, who, um, who, who fulfill these things. And we're going, you know, we're going to be more skeptical of license renewers of, of, of broadcasters who, who aren't going all the way back to the 1950s when the, and the 1940s, when the FCC issued its fam- famous post-World War II blue book, which was basically a critique of commercial broadcasting and said, we really expect you um, to do better than this. So there was all this pressure on to, on commercial broadcasters back then. There's no pressure on commercial broadcasters anymore to do, to do anything. Um, uh, um, almost. I mean, I think that there's some old New Deal throwback where they have to um, every every four months they have to send the FCC some kind of a report of you know public service stuff that they did. But but quarterly, for the most part, quarterly issues and programming reports. Yeah, quor- yep. quor- quarterly issues and programming reports. I and mean, I think that's still around. But basically, there's none of that um, around anymore. So they're not so worried about that any anymore like they were um, back in the day. The art, you know, the, the you know, the, the the mantra today is is that competition is going to fix everything. All you have to do is make sure that there's lots of you know platforms out there and lots of competition, and um, everybody will compete with each other. And somehow, out of that beautiful competitive, and Randian m- morass, will come the wonderful programming that um that we all that will that teach we all think, kids to read. That, that will teach <laughs> that will teach kids to read. Um, and you know, and that's, take, everyone knows that's where the money is and not to take the money out of the cookie jar and things like that. Toddlers, their ABCs. There's... Right. So, so it's different now. Um, that pressure is no longer on the commercial broadcasters. So you can't really expect them, I think today, um, to look at this in the same way that they're going to look at it like they did in the 1960s and the 1970s when they really saw these things as taking the pressure off of them to fulfill any kind of public broadcasting needs. Right. And, and, you know, it, my recollection is correct. I mean, even Nixon, so just mere years after the uh, Public Broadcasting Act passed, uh, began attacking the CPB with budget cuts or at least proposed budget it's cuts. It's a very funny story. Um, Nixon in um, the early 1970s got all, got, got all Nixonian and paranoid about um, these all these public TV stations that emerged during this period, many of which were quite – you know, we're in liberal areas. We're quite skeptical of him. And he cut their budgets. He cut the CPB's budget in the early 1970s. And then came the Watergate scandal. And um, Senator Sam Irvin's um, famous congressional senatorial hearing on the Watergate scandal. And all of these public TV stations said, let's get our revenge by broadcasting this stuff gavel to gavel. So across the United States, you got gavel to gavel public TV coverage with lots of fundraising, you know, through the whole thing of the entire Watergate scandal. And I think that that's actually part of the downfall of Richard Nixon, the widespread publicity of the Watergate hearings by public TV and public radio stations across the United States, in large part um, out of revenge 
for um, Nixon's cutting their budgets huh. um, in the early 1970s. And Nixon, I mean, he was sort of known for for trying to use the FCC as 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 his political tool as well. I mean, uh, certainly, uh, I mean, I don't remember if this was under Nixon or not, but he definitely used the FCC uh, as a wedge against the Pacifica Foundation to to issue for to issue uh, uh, shorter license renewals. Essentially, is my recollection correct? Um, you know, I don't remember. Whether that's true or not, I am very certain that Richard Nixon did not like the Pacifica Radio Network um, 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 back back in those days. Um, the main uh, impact of Richard Nixon on Pacifica, uh, as, you know, what I'm certain of is is that um, he added people to the Supreme Court who were more conservative. As a result, uh, the lawyers for Pacifica, I think. Um, misassessed the Supreme Court when they decided to appeal that famous indecency ruling mm. that the Federal Communications Commission made on the George Carlin um, um, broadcast in 1972 at WBAI. Um, and the result was is that when it went to the Supreme Court, instead of going where I think that Pacifica's lawyers thought it was going to go, it went five to four against Pacifica, and you got Pacifica versus FCC, the famous indecency ruling that has basically governed um, radio stations and television stations ever since. So, Matthew, we've talked about how every Republican president has threatened the Corporation for Public Broadcasting budget, uh, or or many of them, uh, every, every time they propose a budget, it, it seems possible. And then uh, I'm thinking about uh, my Facebook feed right now, which um, some people uh, <laughs> some people have a dog in this fight, but others don't. And everybody's uh, everybody's worried, very concerned about um, about you know PBS being defunded. But and yet you've as you've mentioned it, it's it's sort of been an empty threat historically. So my question is. Uh, is this is this overblown? Um, it appears that the um, budget that Donald Trump has um, submitted at this point is um, is so is so sketchy, or at least this is what I'm reading. It's so sketchy at this point that it's unclear um, where exactly all of this is going to play out. Already, a bunch, a lot of Republicans or a significant number of Republicans have criticized it. Right. Um, um, criticized it for cuts in areas where they really don't want cuts in areas, uh, cut you know cuts um, because you know it's hurting um, various Republican districts. So I'm not sure how serious uh, this is um, um, in the in the long run. But I think that we would be stupid not to take it seriously, um, not to assume um, that it you know that it is a very serious. Uh, um, attack. You know, in addition, of course, it's the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's a National Endowment for the Arts. I mean, it is an across-the-board um, assault on, on 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 the public support for the humanities. So, of course, it's a really big deal, and it should be taken very, very seriously um, by everybody who cares about all of these um, institutions. Um, I'm, when I say that, you know, in the past this has happened and it has, you know, and it, and it, and it hasn't resulted in the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting going away, I'm just trying to explain why that happened. We should remember that um, Donald Trump is president of the United States, which is a historically unprecedented thing. Um, and um, and we're not just we're not dealing with, you know, we're not dealing with with with, with the, the paradigms of the past right now. We're right. dealing with the paradigms with, with what's happening in the present, which feels like it's alarmingly different and alarmingly new. So I don't really know, um, uh, you know, how this is all going to play out. But of course, I think that we should all take this very, very seriously and do what I just what I did, you know, just for starters yesterday, which is I called all my representatives and told them um, that you need to fight this. Um, you can't, you know, the, not just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but all of the um, su federal support of the, for the humanities appears to be under grave threat. So we need to respond. We need to respond to that. Um, the good news is, is that the Trump administration really does seem like they are, you know, in, in terrible trouble in terms of um, getting what they want to get across through Congress. I mean, this health care um, uh, uh, plan that Trump 
um, has been, you know, has pushing for seems like it's a complete total mess. And um, his Republican Party is deeply divided um, over it. So I think that there are windows of, you know, there's a window of opportunity for us to fight all of this um, because of that. And also because the good news is the Democratic Party, although it's a minority party, in both the House and the Senate, it appears to be quite united on a wide variety of issues. I mean, the usual kind of Democratic Party capitulation um, to um, that that we saw, you know, in the Nixon era and in the Reagan era and in the Bush um, era doesn't seem to be quite there at this point. And as long as we can, you know, keep the fire under them, I think that there are reasons to be hopeful. I, I hope that someday. Uh, it, when we have a sane Congress and a sane administration, that we can start thinking about federal support for public media that doesn't require annual appropriations, but that comes from endowments um, that are created by the collecting of um, uh, of, of incoming resources um, to the um, federal government in the form of things like auctions and things like that, so that so that you don't, so you don't, so not, you're not de- constantly depending upon politics for these things, um, and so that these, and so that, and so that these funds, like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, aren't um, constantly politicized, because I think that that is really sort of the root of the problem here. And by auction, you mean like things like the recent Spectrum auction, where stations, TV stations in particular, were encouraged to kind of consolidate their operations uh, to free up. Uh, some spectrum that could be that's exactly what allocated to other uses, and they were in this spectrum was actually alloc- was was auctioned by the federal government by the FCC. The stations themselves got some of the proceeds, and the federal government got part of the proceeds. Yes, and there are also all of these upper areas in the spectrum, you know, that were later discovered um, to be very valuable. You know, long you know you know a long time ago they were called junk spectrum. You know, they were things for you know a uh, little the little button that opens up your opens up your garage door. Then it was discovered that these things were really good for Wi-Fi. They were really good for, you know, high frequency broadband. And then they were auctioned off to the, to the price of billion do- billions of dollars, which went into the United States Treasury. Some of that money could have been used for an endowment hmm. for the arts and for the humanities and for public broadcasting. Instead, that was a great big missed opportunity. There will be opportunities like that one way or another um, in the future. I really wish that we could... Um, you know, that we could bankroll that into a, into an endowment, a fund um, for, for public broadcasting rather than having the situation in which it's constantly dependent upon the president of the United States and Congress. Well, Matthew, I mean, we will definitely have to see what happens. And, and I think that uh, that you're correct that, you know, in the past, uh, in, in previous administrations that have uh, threatened to cut or defund uh, the CPB have found that resistance from uh, Congre- Congress members who are on the ground in their districts, finding out that um, folks who who may in fact you know vote Republican and may in fact consider themselves conservative also uh, believe it's important to have public broadcasting for all sorts of reasons. Uh, children's programming having been a, a rallying call much of the time, uh, but but other sorts of, of of programming as well as public service and as well you know is part of a very strong part of the emergency alert system, which helps to form a sort of emergency communications backbone in this country. Yeah. Big funding for rural like broadband. Exactly. You know, you know uh, those kind of things. Suddenly, suddenly all the language about free market goes out the window. Right. You know, I mean, all the, all the baloney about the free market and we just let the free market, you know, when it comes to the, when it comes to rural America, you know, suddenly these things, you know, all that language goes out, you know, and then suddenly the importance of the federal government becomes um, becomes much clearer. Exactly. And so we'll follow this. And I don't want to follow this too closely, frankly, because I get a little burned out when we when we're trying to sort of follow the, the minutia of, of, of this con- this congressperson says this and this congressperson says this. So we'll try and and keep our lens at sort of mid focal length to track the things which seem to really make a difference and really matter. Um, but certainly we can we can continue to investigate, I think, pertinent questions, you know, about the, the CPB. Um, and and its importance, and not simply take it for granted, but also you know uh, to be a little skeptical, but not not so skeptical that we're that we're rallying for for its destruction. Because 
in my view, you know, we're talking about a system here, and even in in some ways, in which if money does not flow directly in some cases to some community radio stations, uh, an overall healthy non-commercial broadcasting system, I think, uh, does support community radio stations. Right? It, it it's about uh, it, oftentimes there's cooperation, but it also, you know, it helps for listeners to understand and un- that there is non-commercial broadcasting. And when there's a rich system that exists in the town, I think it, incru- it, it increases uh, people's desire and consumption of this sort of media. And I think in cities where you see rich non-commercial broadcasting, in part, it gets richer when you have more stations and you have more options rather than when you know, there's only uh, one station, one public station, or maybe one uh, you know, university-supported station there. So Yes, that's true. And it also... Um, puts less pressure on one station to be everything for everybody, right. Absolutely. Um, which is, which is one of the big problems that community radio stations face, as you know, which is that, you know, if there's just one community radio station or even two community radio stations, they have, to, it has to be everything for everybody. And, um, that really makes it really hard for it to, for, for, for whoever's running it to run it effectively. Right. And it's become harder and harder over the years as, as a number of different media platforms has proliferated. So I think that's an important point. And, uh, and that, you know, a rich corporation for public broadcasting or community or, or, or an endowment could, could support this even, even more strongly. Uh, and, and that we shouldn't just simply, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, it's really important that you pointed out kind of a proposal of sorts, right? To say we, you know, we shouldn't just simply continue to beg for our crumbs, but continue to conceive of a, a richer, uh, more well insulated and stronger foundation uh, for uh, public and community broadcasting in this country. Um, that it could be more than what we we enjoy. It doesn't. We don't simply need to sit here and, and beg for uh, master not to take away our last uh, scrap of bread. I agree with you. I mean, I really think that um, over the years, you know, the gradual commercialization of public broadcasting, especially via um, um, enhanced underwriting, has made it seem less valuable to many listeners Mm -hmm. as they tune in and they hear what are basically commercials mm-hmm. on so-called non-commercial media. I must tell you that, you know, the, the, the radio stations that I listen to in the Santa Cruz, in the Santa Cruz and San Francisco Bay area. Um, I had that feeling sometimes when I'm listening to a long enhanced underwriting spot that really, as far as I can tell is, you know, all but a commercial, um, you know, why, you know, why is this radio station so special, I think, as I'm listening to this? And I think that that, that cumulative effect has been one of the reasons um, why people have come perhaps to, <coughs> excuse me, to appreciate these things um, less. And, um, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that when we get past um, this individual who is occupying the, the White House, um, we will recognize that um, we we can't go down that, dare I say it, neoliberal road um, any longer. And that if we really want to um, have a, a vibrant democracy in, in this country, we have to um, offer um, people in the United States an alternative um, between um, less and lesser. Well, let's change gears. We, we, we we're analyzing something which, which is the downer. And as Eric promised at the top of the show, uh, we would do the downer. And then we would change to something a little bit more fun because that's partly why we're all in this, right? Is because we, in addition Absolutely. to, in addition to, you know, obviously the important news, the public affairs programming, uh, in the sense of, and, and, and certainly, uh, community service, uh, there's also a lot of fun to be had, uh, in all sorts of radio and, and Matthew, you keep going on these journeys, uh, these sort of online journeys, uh, to discover all sorts of, uh, hidden gems of sorts. And, and, uh, so tell I've us about become, what you've been doing now. I've been addicted to going to the internet archives and looking for old community radio, um, shows. And that to some degree is an exercise in nostalgia and just an exercise or it's an exercise in my you know, being a sort of a knee jerk community radio historian and just seeing what there is, you know, and people are just uploading stuff to the internet archive, um, you know, by the gigabyte per second. I mean, it's really just sort of amazing. And I'm finding, I'm finding not just 
old shows, but I'm finding entire online communities collectively remembering old forgotten community radio stations Hmm. and old forgotten community radio shows. I mean, we're talking about people who have Facebook pages and web pages about these shows and radio stations now. Um, Consider WQAX FM from Bloomington, Indiana, which basically broadcast as a cable station for two decades from 1973 to 1993. Hmm. And it was basically a free form volunteer driven format. And it was it was so beloved to its listeners that if you go to the web, there are still various fan websites that still sing its praises and remember its contributions, even though the operation um, is two decades gone. And there's one web, the the radio station was called Quacks. People called it Quacks. Um, It was, you know, there's all these newspaper articles about it on this one page. And one, it offered Indiana University students, I'm quoting, uh, wannabe DJs, music maniacs, and local eccentrics, a way to learn about radio. And it added for a defined period of time, a yet to be duplicated brand of insanity um, to the local landscape. And here's here's a little bit more um, from it. It said, this reminiscence. It occupied its own little space, scruffy but feisty, hopeless yet hopeful. It had a nutty, it had nutty week-long marathons, silly duck mascots, inevitable summer street dances at which, um, I guess these are um, these are bands, the Walking Runes, the Virginia Scrapings, or Frankie Camaro would appear like clockwork. Have you heard of any of these bands? No. Okay. Paul um, has idiot. a Bloomington pedigree, so he should uh, something. Not a, not a Bloomington pedigree. Champaign Urbana, which is you know okay. the college town to to the to the uh, to the west. All right. So um, Paul has not heard of these bands. Um, the the idiosync- idiosyncratic locations above a garage on South Grant and Kirkwood Avenue's last tenement, the Allen Building. The men- membership was just as idiosyncratic, boasting at various times clean-cut rappers who claimed to be friends with Chuck D and KRS-One, assorted spaceport urchins who liked to climb out on the second-floor Allen Building window, a lapsed Mormon with a suitcase full of death metal tapes, <laughs> punk-, punk rock girls, hippie chicks, grad school refugees, and future law um, students. It eventually fell to pieces, and this article describes – I mean it's like if you read the article – and you're going to post this. So um, if you read the article, it's like the standard arc of a a non-existent community radio station. In the end, it says the things that made WQAX so cool also did it in. Letting anyone join meant the membership endured its share of deadbeats and loose screws. (laughs) (laughs) Having a – Having a massive record library required a place to keep them and thus rent that came due with an, inner, an unnerving regularity, um, as it does. Um, frequently, there was barely enough money to pay their rent line phone bills since the station had very few steady sources of income. Occasionally, the members passed the hat to make up the deficit. I can remember censoring that the station's end was upon us. All but a handful of reliable station members were jumping stip, ship. The red ink was rising. All else was disintegrating in power struggles personality clashes and general dismay. Um, Mm. I quit while I could still see the bright after image, like the tail of a comet going across the sky, brilliant, but directionless. That sounds, Um, uh, ominously familiar. Yes. And this this this, person's a radio survivor is what I'm going to say. Um, and, um, if you, and, and, uh, it had sort of a, an interesting relationship with the college radio, the official college radio station, WIUX um, of in of Indiana U- University, which still exists to this day. And there are all these sites and you can, you know, people just writing all this stuff and show an old, old newspaper cartoons of um, people at the radio station um, and stuff like that. I also, and um, um, there's an, an, on, on the article that I have, I have an internet archive audio. They have audio from this station. They had a um, host named Gary Indiana, (laughs) (laughs) you know, who hosted a regular show, and I've got it from February of 1981. That was uh, something from, whoa, that was something from the new Ian Dury album on uh, WQAX. The album's called Laughter, the song called uh, Delusions of Grandeur. Before that, we heard something from the new album by Echo and the Bunnyman called Crocodiles, and 
oddly enough, we heard a song called Monkeys from that album. Um, Scary Indiana, once again, I'll be here until about uh, 1.30 or maybe 2 o'clock. God only knows. It depends on how long I hold up, and it also depends on how many requests I get. So why don't you give me a call here at 337-9415. Right now I've got the specials from More Specials. Um, I've also got found a, 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 a community that doesn't surround a, 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 a radio station that's gone. It's just one radio show. Right. It was called Sister Midnight, and it was on KMUW-FM of Wichita, Kansas. And um, uh, it, KMW is still around, and this show was called Sister Midnight. It was an all-night punk rock show, and it's got a bunch of um, – uh, tapes of I've got a d- bunch of tapes online of the Mumbles. Have you ever heard of the Mumbles? There's a band now called the Mumbles. No, I've never heard of them t- either. The, but they were called the Mumbles, and I listened to the Mumbles. They were a punk rock band. They did really good Elvis imitations, I should say. <laughs> and I've got the Elvis imitations on the, the Elvis imitation. There's two Elvis imitation tapes of the of, of the Mumbles. <laughs> There is an entire Facebook page, which is quite populated, dedicated to nothing but KMW, KMUW FM after midnight in the 1980s and huh. the 1990s. And lots of newspaper clips, including one of this, um, a, 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 a feature of a, Cher- a disc jockey named Cheryl Burke sits at the control board of KMUW. By day, Burke is a student and a psychiatric nurse's aide by night. Um, so, Which prepared her well to be at a community radio at, station. Absolutely, to be a community radio station. What else could you be but a psychiatric? Everybody at a community radio station is a psychiatric nurse's aide on one <laughs> level or another. Um, so, so <laughs> I think, anyway, so I've got, I've, if you want to tune in, you know, you come, you know, come to this, come to Great Waves, and I've got the Elvis imitations of the mumbles. Well, well, uh, I'll probably drop some of that into the, into, uh, oh, good. In, in, into the, into the show like I did last time. Um, you know, so it's interesting to me about that history about, uh, uh, is it WQAX, right? Yeah, no. WQAX. WQAX, Quacks. Quacks in Bloomington, Indiana, because the year it went out of business, 1993, is also the year that Bloomington's first com- community radio station on the FM dial went on the air, uh, WFHB. Um, so it, I, I, I remember that because I was in Champaign-Urbana, uh, Illinois, right at that time, 1993. I, I got involved in community radio in 1994. And about a year or so later, I think I met the folks from WFHB who at that time were newly on the air. So I wonder if if having sort of a, a slightly less chaotic uh, FM newly formed FM station also kind of took the wind out of the sails of, of it's, it's w, interesting because quacks. This, huh. this is it's interesting. This article by this um, former program director does not mention that. What is the uh, program but, director's name? Um, I am looking here now on the hold on a second. I've I uh, I think that this person's name is Ann Zender. Okay, not a name I know, but I, I was just curious in case it might uh, might. Uh, Jiggle some memories out. It's possible we should have Anne on the program. If well, uh, uh, so I'll, I'm going to hand that one to you. You, you see, see, Eric's always the one who's that. like, "There's someone who we should have on the program," which I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody has to go do that work to get them on. Uh, the program. Most of the articles, co, uh, co-founder. This article says co-founder and general manager Jim Berkey is at this moment trying to find a new home for for Quacks and is still holding weekly meetings. Unfortunately, this article is from 1993, so I have a feeling that the weekly meetings are no longer no, happening. Probably not. But, or if they are, they're maybe, very sad. Maybe, maybe they are <laughs> happening in the mind of two and a half people somewhere. You know, I don't know. But again, you found this community on Facebook and archive.org? Yes. Archive. First, I found it on archive.org, and then I sort of followed the, the trail, so to speak. So tell, and I fa- tell and me. I found, I, found, I found the Facebook page for KUMUW here. So who's um, – is there one person – who put this Facebook page up? I mean, not you don't know who, but is there any evidence that there's more than ten people who care about this Facebook page? Well, this one, let's see, this one has uh, KMW. 
It has 253 members. And are they are they talking to each other today? Let's see. It's not. It uh, last mean- the last post was in February 12th. It was a YouTube okay. of um, of of Kate of 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 the show, and I um I I don't know, but um you know it's relatively recent. I want to look into this um, community. Um. And anyway, so um, I requested other, so you can get you you can you can get other information by clicking stuff um, here, but you have to get permission from the um, administrators administrators of the of the site. Anyway, I still think it's very um, interesting that all of this stuff gets put up um, on the web, and that you have these you know forgotten and then remembered. Um, um, shows and radio and radios and radio stations. Um, and I think that it's, it's all about people's hunger for media that really connects people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that really connects real time that, re- that connects real live people, um, um, to each other in the same geographic area in the same, um, time. And I think that that's what makes community radio, um, special. And I still think that that's what makes community radio, um, um, unique, even in this age of, of social media and Facebook groups and, you know, Instagram and all of that other stuff. And I think that that's one of the reasons why people keep posting this stuff and remembering this stuff online. I mean, community radio is one of the last places along with college radio, where if you're tuning in at midnight, like that, uh, punk rock show, uh, where you still have an actual live living, breathing human being behind the board, pressing play on CDs or sometimes dropping the needle on records and answering the phone. I mean, it may be in your market, the only place where there's a live living, breathing human being doing that and interacting. And, and, and it clearly what it seems like people are connecting with is how these shows were um, interesting and dynamic and also like, truly connected to the community, local bands, touring bands, uh, you know, responding to all sorts of, of cultural and information needs that the rest of the dial did not respond well to. And, you know, uh, if we can get back to the CPB for just a moment. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, if the CPB gave more money or some entity like the CPB gave more money, um, you know, like that gives to Germany or, you know, even comparable, comparable to Germany, you know, G- Germany gets like 70 times per capita. We said this at the beginning of the show, than people in the United States did, you know, shows like that might still be around, you know, I mean, I think that there's a whole lot, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of romance about community radio stations and their poverty that somehow the poverty ennobles the community radio station, makes it independent, makes it more, um, you know, lively and, you know, vibrant. I, I don't share most of that um, sentiment. I think that poverty sucks and, um, and that not having, not having money to pay the rent for a community radio station doesn't make it a better radio station. Um, and I, I don't share all of those romantic feelings about having radio stations where nobody's paid and everybody's a volunteer. Um, um, in term, you know, in terms of their ability to function, their ability to generate audience and a wide variety of other criteria. Yeah. So, you know, maybe if, you know, if we had a corporation of public broadcasting that didn't give out peanuts, even at the best of times, um, these, some of these radio stations that I'm uncovering and radio shows would still be around. And I think that that would be a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to think that we're sort of forming a community here of radio survivors around both the podcast and what we do. Uh, on our website, radiosurvivor.com. You know, we do hear from listeners quite a bit and we get recommendations and people correct us or provide more information. And, you know, I'm thinking if anyone has these memories to share, there's a, and, and there's a show that just, it maybe changed your life in some tiny little way or just made every Tuesday night better for a lot of years or a station that really, uh, for whatever reason, resonated with you and, and you feel like it, it certainly helped you love a place more or maybe made you love a place in the first place. We'd love to hear about that. We'd like to hear more stories of these great stations, these great DJs, these great producers, um, you know, and these great programs. Uh, drop us a line. It is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we do hear from you. Um, and we do try to chase things down and, and, and learn about them. Um, you know, and, and certainly if you would like to talk about it and share this memory with us, we'd, we'd love to have you on. This is, 
you know, <laughs> this is not an exclusive microphone. We, we, we put out the invitation, but we really do mean it. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us that email at uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. As well, we could use your support to help us keep doing what we do. Every dollar really does matter. Um, so go to our webpage, radiosurvivor.com slash support to find out ways to provide either kind of a monthly donation or a one-time donation. Whatever you can afford helps us to do this. This is, you know, like Matthew, we don't want to really, uh, as Matthew mentioned, we don't really want us to, to to revel in poverty. We see no romance in it. But this is pretty much a volunteer operation still as it goes. And uh, your money helps us to do the little extra things. It helps us actually have a podcast and pay for the hosting. Helps us keep the website going and helps us, uh, you know, do little things like help Jennifer with her travel and, and other things like that. So anything you can contribute is greatly appreciated because we're trying to shed some light on all of these topics and, and not just have a hot take on what the CPB means, but also to dig a little bit into its history and put it in perspective and think about a world we would like to live in and not just uh, go scrambling underneath the table for some crumbs. Uh, any final thoughts, Matthew? Um, I, I've also got a, a, um, a, an exploration of a, um, a rather strange um, film that I found. Um, uh, if you're interested in looking at it of, um, it's a, uh, the United States army in 1951, uh, produced a film called how to run an independent radio station. Huh. And it is up on the, um, archive and I've got it up there. And there's a very interesting debate going on among the people who are commenting about this, this film. Um, about why the heck the United States Army produced a film in 1951 on how to run an independent radio station. And I'm just going to leave that as a little teaser um, <laughs> um, for, 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 for you listeners to go check it out um, on radiosurvivor.com. And we will and, definitely have a link in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is number 85. Sorry, Matthew, did I cut you <laughs> off? Nope, you didn't cut me off. I'm good. Okay. Matthew, I'm so glad you joined us on the podcast today. It, it definitely thank, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. And it's yeah. always great to talk to you guys and um um and um to read what you and what Jennifer and all the stuff that um Jennifer is um is into. I'm very glad that we were able to um uh fund Jennifer's travels last year, um, which we did. We, you know, we contributed to um her expenses and we couldn't have done that without the people who um, contribute um, to Radio Survivor, and we hope to do more things like that. Um, if um, if people will con- will think will think will think we're worthy of it, and will um, contribute. And right now, right now, as we speak, Jennifer is at a college radio symposium at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, and going on radio station tours. And we'll have tape from that uh, symposium. We hope so. I, no, I can promise. You can promise. I've, I have produced radio, friends. That, that, is, that is a promise. I have produced radio, so I can make a promise, which means uh, contacting the people that uh, can promise that tape and provide it to us. We, Wonderful. We know that Radio Survival will have tape from that symposium in the near future. Very good. So uh, spreading the good word of, of college and non-commercial radio. Thanks again, Matthew. Thanks to everybody for spending an hour of your week with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah.